Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and I am glad to be back. Bit of a break there. I got sucked down deep into the research, and so I'm very excited to announce tonight a new series called Identity, and I'll get to that in a second, but lots of other announcements that I want to go through. Well, not lots, but uh, two. Um, one, up on my website, and I'll put a link below, I have my new classes up, and there's going to be a class in June, and there's going to be two classes in September. Um, and so all the information there is on the website, and I'll put a little sort of uh, description up video here later this week. But I just wanted to put that out there for people because, you know, as we start coming out of the pandemic, we can begin to gather in small groups again. And so I'm very much looking forward to that. And the reason there's three classes this year is I want to say a big thank you to, to some people. One, everybody from the classes that were canceled in 2020 uh, just said, hey, no, we want to do it in 2021. So basically I have one class already full. So that's, you know, A, thank you very much for, to those people, greatly appreciated. And two, during the pandemic, people were contacting me, asking me if I was going to do classes in 2021 and they wanted to be on a waiting list. So again, you know, in a difficult year for everybody, it was very encouraging for me to have uh, such kind con uh, comments and interest in my work and also the comments that I've received through uh, email um, and on my YouTube channel. And so I really, I really appreciate that. It's not been the most fun year for everybody, but uh, things are looking, looking up, I think, and uh, the future looks bright. So anyway, I'll put a, a, a link there below and then more information will be coming out. But it's all on the website, uh, westcecil.com. And oh, and also I'm supposed to say that I'll, I'll, I might put stuff on Instagram and I'll put the link there as well. But that's kind of a dubious proposition. I, I often forget about Instagram and then I remember and then I forget and then I remember. So it's sort of very spotty. But anyway, information, more information will be coming. Identity. Wow. So this is kind of a follow up to the Transvaluation of All Values series. And the more I pondered and the more I was looking at the world today and <clears throat> thinking about where we are relative to history and after having done the Transvaluation series, which is uh, very challenging intellectually because trying to look at uh, transformations in real time is much easier to look back on philosophical history because, you know, you, have, you gain some perspective. You lose some intimacy, but you gain the perspective of scale and distance and sort of what carries through. In this case, we're looking very much more contemporaneously as events are unfolding in real time. And the more I thought about the Transvaluation series, the more I realized that the individual is put into a very difficult situation in societies in which you have a transformation of values because it, they, it, it unmoors them. And I mentioned that in the series, but the more I thought about that, it got me thinking about the questions of identity. And then, of course, identity politics is sort of floating in the air. And I don't really want to address that directly, but, you know, whole questions of identity um, interest me. And so I started doing research on this and boy, did I go down the rabbit hole. <clears throat> but so the new series, Identity, is an exploration of the philosophical, psychological, sociological issues surrounding the question of human identity and how we work in societies and so forth. But a couple of things I want to start with, just, you know, just write this down so you remember it. One, 
after having worked through this, and I'm not even done yet. In fact, I'm starting the series before I finish the research because I just, if I don't, I'm never going to get, I'm never going to start it because I'm just getting more and more information and uh, uh, insights. And so it's just wonderful. So where we're going to end up, I have no idea, but I know where we're going to start for at least a couple of weeks. Um, but one, uh, it is amazing how well we're doing. We may not be doing that well, but when you realize as we go through this series, the kind of challenges we're facing uh, as communities, groups, and individuals, I think it's almost extraordinary, like I said, that we're doing as well as we are, both communally and as societies and perhaps even in the whole world. So uh, in my lecture on health, I mentioned, you know, your society hates you and wants you to be sick. In the subject of identity, I think that is simply part of that, that whole elements of our social structure today are designed specifically to undermine our sense of identity. And it, and it works, right? And so people feel threatened. They feel uneasy. They feel lost. They feel confused. And it's not um, inadvertent. It's not some sort of overreaction or sort of some, some excess sensitivity and like, oh, people used to be really tough and they knew who they are. And today we're just sort of lost in this crazy world and we're all weak or whatever, or we're confused for some reason. No, there's very specific reasons we're confused. And that's because our society and many elements of our culture are actively working against any ability of us to form a strong sense of personal and or group identity. So that's one. So keep this in mind. It's not um, some sort of crazy uh, problem that individuals are facing because they have some unique personal uh, issue. <clears throat> Many of these identity ideas that you're seeing uh, throughout our society and people struggling with identity are the uh, outcomes of very specific causes that will go through. Second, um, if, if people know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, he has this design where, and it's, you know, it is a useful rubric, but, you know, there's some problems with it. And I've mentioned it before, I believe, but, you know, it is useful to think about. And at the bottom is like air, food, and water. If you can't breathe, you don't care about eating. You want air. If you've got um, air, then you probably want food and water. If you have air, food, and water, then you start thinking about things like love and self-realization. And he makes this pyramid where, you know, you work your way up the pyramid. And again, this, this is not entirely incorrect, and it does give you some insight. However, what's clear for humans is, and some actually even some of the other apes that we'll discuss, uh, we value identity pretty much as much as we value food and water. Probably not air. Air seems to really override everything else. But, you know, we will we'll sacrifice our lives in pursuit of identity. Um, we'll certainly sacrifice food, no problem, and water w without hesitation in pursuit of identity, either to defend it or to try to create it um, in some ways. And so, you know, the other part of the identity struggle is, is A, our society is really creating and I think this is global today, by the way, is really creating challenges for the individual and for the community. And second, there is this pervasive underlying sense that you get that, oh, well, people are just whining, right? Like, what is this identity or self 
understanding problem. It's just sort of these vague philosophical first world problems of uh, the uh, overeducated white people or something like this. Um, uh, no, 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 and no. Uh, it is a fundamental element of human survival. No identity, basically no human survival. It's right there with food and water. And so when our society, for various reasons, um, disrupts that, it's a core threat to the health of the individual and, of course, of the individuals who form communities because it, it's right there. It's, it's right at the bottom. You, you can't function well or at all without a sense of identity. And so I want to start with, the, with that sort of big canvas backdrop as we move forward. These are really fundamental issues that we're going to explore, um, and they're, how they play out matters uh, dramatically for the well-being of individuals and communities. Now, problems, lots and lots of problems, of course. Anytime you try and tackle one of these vagueish, broad subjects, you end up with problems. Um, problem number one, or at least problem of, of the many, is nobody knows what identity is and how you define it varies. Uh, psychology has several definitions. They can't really agree on anything in particular. Philosophy is not very helpful as us usual. It's, you know, it starts with the identity core principle of you know, A equals A, this kind of mathematical sense of identity. And then extrapolates generally from that into sort of a philosophical sense of self and it's just not terribly helpful in any way there's several schools which we'll talk about about what might form identity sociology anthropology political science economics to a certain extent all have either very or fundamentally different uh, definitions of what it means to have an identity and how is it expressed so i try to come up with a simple functional definition for the purposes of this exploration. And what I came up with is the sense of yourself as an individual, how you think of yourself in relation to the society around you, your immediate society and your larger society. And of course, there's many gradations there, but in the immediate, I would say friends, family, um, the people you interact with say, on a day-to-day -day basis, and then the larger community would be, you know, village, city, becomes increasingly abstract. By the time you get to a state, we're talking about an almost entirely abstract concept of identity. But you have to have two, both of those. You have to have a sense of yourself and how that self relates to the larger groups around you. And those tend to be immediate, familial, and friends, and then larger sense, which would be you know, the increasingly abstract sense when you get, like I said, city to country to globe, right? People say, oh, we're global citizens. On one hand, it's true. On the other hand, what does that mean? And how do I relate myself to a planet and uh, seven, eight billion people? It's a tricky, uh, in fact, perhaps unanswerable question in many ways. <clears throat> and so when I talk about entity, identity, it is this reflection of the individual themselves and how they perceive themselves within context of their social environment. <clears throat> now, you can't just have a sense of identity in yourself. And I want to start 
there, roughly, and then I'm going to move on to uh, chimpanzees and, and the apes as a model for the baseline of these sorts of identity issues. But I do want to tackle right up front this question of identity related to groups. And I've mentioned this a little bit before, you know, you have Rousseau and so on. But here's the issue. Uh, if you look at sort of the extreme notions of libertarianism, not, not the core of libertarianism, which says at some point the utility of government overwhelms uh, the individual's rights, or in another time, too many individual rights make things ungovernable. So <clears throat> where you draw those lines between the individual and the government matter. And libertarians want to lean, of course, away from government, less government, better, and, you know, trying to work that out. And that's a real philosophical question. Um, many of its current manifestations, however, are simply absurd, which is to say, you know, we don't need a government. We don't want a government. You know, government's bad. Communities are bad. That just represses the individual. This is a complete, A, it's intellectually bankrupt, um, as, as we'll discuss briefly, and B, it, it's a complete misreading of the world. What I find fascinating about it is this is most often voiced by uh, the sort of tech elite group, highly educated, generally highly successful, and they're in this world of, of technology that makes them feel liberated from state sanction, which is like, great, okay, so I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a more of a global citizen, I've got skills, I can travel around. However, their entire existence is mediated by the most comprehensive set of rules from which they benefit international trade standards, international communication standards, digital standards, uh, communication standards, as far as like how programming languages are written. These are all mediated, constructed, and created by various government entities, social agreements, uh, corporate agreements. I mean, so deep, so broad, so all-encompassing that when people say, oh, you know, I'm a libertarian, I, you know, Bitcoin will liberate us from government control, it's, uh, it's not to say Bitcoin is necessarily a bad idea, but the notion that somehow taking fiat currency and moving it out of government control eliminates, frees the individual is, is silly. It just ties the individual to a different sort of structure. Now, maybe a preferable structure, which is fine, but it does not liberate the individual. It simply creates a different structure in which they may feel more comfortable uh, functioning, but it, it's not an elimination or even in many cases, even a reduction of the kinds of oversight and rules, it's a change. And so that's a, at the, at the edges. Like I said, the core of libertarianism, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable question, is how much government is too much? Where do we draw the lines between individual liberty and communal cooperation? Tough question, probably insoluble. But when people start saying, oh no, just throw this off, it is a complete misreading of the nature of humanity. Here's the problem, or one of the many problems with this, uh, you overlook, we tend to overlook because we take it for granted, how much of our world is pre-built on a st assumed structure of cooperation and shared endeavor. So we have a language or languages. We did not create those. We learned them at incredible cost. We spend a lot of time, um, even, if, even if we never went to school, we spend a lot of personal time gathering the information that allowed us to build a language and then we use that language every day. And the use of that language is a cooperative endeavor. The individual agrees to use language in a certain way. And there's a broad range of this. 
so that they can communicate with other people in their perceived community. On one hand, this is incredibly restrictive because the amount of ways you could communicate is narrowed down to some relatively narrow linguistic band defined by your community. On the other hand, of course, incredibly liberating because languages are very flexible and allow you to express yourself to a, a remarkable degree. I mean, you know, language is a whole nother issue, of course. But so it, the, even at this most fundamental level, humans to be alive and be well are involved in communities. We cannot thrive. In fact, we can't survive. Uh, children who are raised without human contact, uh, they never develop. Their minds don't develop fully because we are not able to survive alone or uh, develop fully as humans, reach our full capacities, mental and physical, everything else thrive essentially without being in communal environment. It is the definition of being human. And this radical attempt that you see taken to its sort of crazy extreme in a thinker like Ayn Rand is where she goes wrong, is that, oh, the individual should follow no communal rules. Uh, she took this so far, by the way, that in her diaries, she, she celebrated um, this uh, sort of psychopath who had kidnapped a child, tortured it to death, and then sent these horrible mess letters, and I think even recordings, to the parents of the child. I mean, just really profoundly evil act. And, but Ayn Rand wanted to say, okay, here's an individual who's thrown off all the strictures of society and therefore is a truly free individual. No, this is not what that person is. That person is a psychopath. And the psychopath, by definition, is someone who does not follow any of those rules. This is not admirable. This is not liberation, because that person has now cut themselves off from any capacity to survive or thrive. They're, 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 they're going to die. They're going to be uh, excluded or killed at some point. All societies will do this when given the opportunity. Um, and so, but the notion that, oh, that's how the individual, that's how individualistic we need to be is a sort of poisonous concept that we need to uh, address right up front. Because when you look at identity and how people form identity, they want to be individuals, but they want their individuality to be reinforced, re reflected in, and to have efficacy within the context of a society. And that's why identity is, always has this reflective element to it. I want to understand me within a context because, you know, functionally, who would we be with no context? You know, we would have no sense of ourselves. We would just sort of, you know, I don't know, people talk about this when they take drugs. And on one hand, hey, great, liberating. And, you know, you become one with the universe. You have no identity, you know, excellent, but temporary. And that's not what being a human is. Maybe that's maybe we'll evolve in 10 million years to some you know entity that's that way. But right now, we have uh, we need that reflection and distinction while being also included within our cultures, however we define them. And so that is important to understand and to get a sense of how deeply rooted this is, and where I wanted to ground the lecture after that is to think about our ancestors, not our, you know, near ancestors, our near human ancestors, but our, you know, a little bit earlier chimpanzee ancestors or all the monkeys. There's lots of great monkey research, by the way. The primate research is fascinating all over the map. Monkeys are interesting, different, you know, bonobos, chimps, orangutans, gorillas, spider monkeys. There's so many different kinds of monkeys and they're not all the same. 
So I focus mainly on chimpanzees, but notice everything has this great variation, but within a theme. But if we look at chimps, one of our nearer uh, relatives in the primate family tree, um, several issues jump out immediately. One is they are incredibly social. And it's easy to misunderstand what this means. If you read the research on them, you can find little pie charts and such that say, oh, you know, they'll spend 9% of their waking hours social grooming. This is reinforcing hierarchies, uh, spending time with their families, their close kin, usually mother, sisters, brothers, relationships, uh, playing, kids particularly, but even adults spend a fair amount of time playing with each other. And this is a type of, you know, social interaction. And then just straight social grooming of combing through each other's hair, which seems to be a reciprocal trust building, bond building process. However, if you read the research, what you discover is basically almost every waking moment, chimpanzees are having their identity, their place within their society reinforced um, and affirmed or challenged. I mean, whatever it is, mostly affirmation, but occasionally challenge. So chimps spend a lot of time in the wild. They're territorial, which we're going to talk about. It's very important to understand that they're territorial. And they patrol this territory looking for food, making sure other chimp bands or other problems aren't intruding, and taking care of that, that sort of uh, their area as they understand it. Now, this will expand and contract. It's not an absolute set boundary, but it is a rough sense that they have of where they are, what's theirs, what food resources they're wanting to protect, and if they're going to expand, which direction they want to check to see if they can expand relative to other chimp groups that might be around them or other threats. When they do this patrolling, which is a fair part of their day, many days, this is organized by social hierarchy. I mean, not just hierarchy, but, you know, your dominant male, second male, different groups. Where you walk, how close you walk, who you walk with, who goes, who stays, it's all reinforces the social group. If you're a young male, really young, and you don't patrol, this basically means that you're a kid, you know, you're, you're a juvenile. When you get old enough to sort of move with the male pack, this is a definite change in social status and understanding who you are. Generally speaking, the closer you are to the uh, alpha male or the, or, or the lead males, the more important you are. Further back, the less important you are. If you want to move up, you kind of have to negotiate that through you know, making friends or trying to, you know, be aggressive. There's all kinds of different strategies. Important at this moment to note is simply that as they do that, they're reinforcing their social hierarchy. So it's not just when they're actually socially grooming or sharing or playing that they're doing this. They're doing it while they're looking for food and patrolling their area. When they get food, how they distribute food, who they share food with, you know, where you eat, what groups you sit with when you eat, how much you get. All of this also very reinforces again. This is another moment where the social hierarchy is reinforced or challenged or disturbed or explored or pressed. You know, it's always slightly unbalanced, a lot morphing, older. People are getting older, chimps are coming up, but it's a continuous process of reinforcement. Lots of hugging, lots of physical contact, a lot of play, a lot of food sharing amongst friends, it turns out, that they're the primary mode of food sharing, both 
his mother and children, of course, but also a lot of his elective food sharing tends to be against friend groups, which doesn't seem to have a lot to do with hierarchy. So there's you know, different elements of this, of course, hierarchical elements, but also friend elements and then familial elements, all being reinforced, explored, and challenged continuously. So while social grooming is certainly important, more or less the entire time chimps are awake, they are being generally physically, but also with food and proximity to other uh, chimps in their tribe, they're, who they are, where they stand, who their friends are, who their family is, is being reinforced continuously. If you're awake, you're getting some sort of message, often reassuring, but reassuring, but not invariably, that, hey, this is who you are. This is where you belong. <clears throat> so, Again, if they're awake, they're being reinforced in some way. So it's not, it's not like social. The social thing doesn't happen, and then they go about the rest of survival. Survival, socializing, is, is inextricable, completely linked. Isolated uh, chimpanzees tend not to do well. Uh, often they're killed by chimp groups, various chimp groups, but basically they tend to fail to thrive. They often just die on their own. They can survive, but they don't tend to like it. They um, they want to be in groups, and isolated chimps tend to try and reincorporate uh, themselves into existing groups if they can. Often this doesn't work. Uh, easier for females, by the way, than males. Now, I talked about their territorial. So one element of this socializing, and we tend to overlook this, I think, is what does it mean to be territorial? And for uh, primates and for chimpanzees, it means you have to have a sense of spatial awareness, a sense of place, where I belong, a sense of boundaries, and a memory, right? I know where I am, and I know that where I am is relatively safe, and it's mine or communally ours, and that when I go beyond this, and, and you can see this if you watch the film's that are online, of which are many fascinating ones, you know, when they get to the edge of their boundaries or they push over, you know, every, they get very much more nervous. They know, they're like, oh, here we go. I'm going into, you know, terra incognita. This is, this is new lands. Every, you know, be a little bit more on guard, be a little more afraid, be a little more nervous because, you know, we don't know who's there. It could be other bands of chimps. That's what we're always worried about or other threats that we aren't aware of. But chimpanzees have a sense of place, where they belong, where they're raised, what the boundaries of that is or, or, or those places are. And again, they change over time. They can morph, they can expand, they can contract. But fundamentally, they have this sense, and it requires a memory. It requires both a spatial map that they can hold in their head and a memory so that they know. They don't wake up every morning and go, oh, I wonder where I am, and they spend the day reestablishing that. They wake up in the morning and go, I'm where I belong, and I'm going to explore that place and make sure it's okay. Get some food, check the boundaries, you know, make sure the... The roof isn't leaking, essentially. You know, check everything out, wander about. Uh, but I'm safe. I belong. I'm home. So this sense of uh, a greater their greater sense of place in the world beyond just what they can immediately see and where they're sitting 
is crucial to understanding their, you know, social behavior. And of course, belonging inside of that is one of the things that's continuously reinforced. So they have a sense of spatial awareness of a larger world and of a past. Another thing you'll see is this continual discussion of kinship. Kinship is very big, particularly mother and child, the mother and their children. And how you relate to your kin and your siblings tends to structure a fair part, not everything, but a fair part of chimp interaction. So if your mother is high status, it tends to be a bit of a leg up for you to be a high status chimpanzee. Generally, again, on the other side, of course, equally true that if your mother is low status, it tends to mean you're, you have a little more challenge to gain status within the chimpanzee group. But you know who your siblings are, and this actually affects your interactions within the uh, chimpanzee group. You know who your mother is, and you know how she relates to the larger social structure of your group. So kinship, very important. And sibling relationships, less important, but still important. And again, think about what this means. This means that you know, you can remember, you identify specific groups of your chimp community as, oh, these are my siblings. That's my mother. These are my siblings. And even if your mother has children with a, 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 a chimp male who is not your father, you still tend to identify with that as being a member, a closer member of your family. And again, this is loose-ish, but they do recognize this, and it does influence behavior. So they have a sense of family and kinship that goes beyond simply, oh, that's my mother, and when I become an adult, I forget who she is, and I have no uh, res response or recourse or concern for my siblings. So two, so if they have a space of uh, a sense of place, a sense of history of place, and a sense of larger sense of the world, they also have a sense of time related to their families and, and their relatives that goes over generations, right? So you, you can't have a sense of kinship if you don't then, when you're older, pass that on, right? So you, you have a sense of generation. So you can, even if a chimp mother is dead, you have to remember those relations and they go and pass them down, essentially. And so kinship and family groups also has this element of time, right? It requires a memory that is carried, you know, forward. So it's, it's their social groups is shaped not just by the present and what's happening now, but by memories of the past that include family groups and memories of the past that include and uh, contain a sense of the larger world, of the space that they inhabit, of their territory, and the fact that they're surrounded by territory that's not them. Uh, there was a fascinating example of all this that I read because they were talking about there was a, a monkey mur or chimps murdered a former member of a community, and uh, it turned. I mean, sort of I'll simplify, but essentially, an alpha male when he got older was displaced by a group actually of younger males who were finally able to team up and and you know kick him out <clears throat> and so he sort of hung around on the edges of of the society 
and finally kind of began working his way back in like so you know slowly easing his way back in and you know making friends again and trying not to be threatening to the new uh new chiefs on the block as it were but uh, the chimps the people who are studying this primatologists speculated that they think what happened what they at least observed they didn't see him being killed but what they think happened was he was trying to come back and establish himself not as the alpha male again but as pretty high status and the new males just weren't going to have it. And so finally, because they either perceived him as a threat, uh, which is most likely, they decided to just kill him, so they did. Now think about all of this that, that requires. So that alpha male had to remember what his earlier relationships to the tribe, to his chimp group was, and to still feel that. Rather than just saying, oh, I desperately want to get back in, I, I remember where my status was, and I want to try and get as far back up there as I can. Meanwhile, and, and some of the chimps were okay with that, which means they must have also remembered him. And then some of the other chimps were like, no, no, we do remember you. We remember you were an alpha male, and we're afraid that maybe you're going to try to get back there. We don't want that, and so we perceive you as a threat. And we're not going to stand for that. We're, we're not falling for your tricks. And so all of these social hierarchies have histories. They don't just, you know, they're not reestablished every day brand new. They, they, they carry on through time. And the, the chimps feel changes for good and ill. They, they, they wear them, they feel them, they make them nervous. And when there's some change or some threat, usually the next thing that happens is everybody goes around and hugs each other and kisses each other and holds hands to reaffirm that, okay, okay, that's past and we're all okay now. Everything's going to be fine. Just relax. But, th but they remember this. And so the combination of spatial and awareness and, and the history of the space, this belongs to us, this is ours, and this is what the territorial boundaries are, and of the communal sense of, oh, the kinship, how these relates, and the status issues related to kinship and not just to kinship, and hierarchy, and how those all come together, form a central core element. Basically, chimps isolated don't thrive. Often they just die, otherwise they get sick and depressed, and, and they fail to thrive. Um, and when they're taken into captivity, they tend to form very close bonds with their human uh, either people taking care of them or exploiting them, depending on you know the environment that they're in, because that's they they desperately need that sort of social interaction. And finally, on on the chimpanzee front, oh, we could go on this forever. By the way, I've been spending an unimaginable amount of time with our primate relatives. Is most of the time, most of the chimpanzees, and you also see this to a lesser extent in orangutans, but in gorillas you see this, bonobos you see this to an ex extraordinary degree, they're cooperative. What they achieve, what they're able to, the lives they're able to make for themselves in uh, the wild are basically functions of their cooperation. Now, they're less cooperative than humans are, but they are cooperative to an absolutely extraordinary degree. Uh, food sharing, uh, hug sharing, playing, 
the notion that they actually have friendships. They recognize, like I said, as I mentioned, food sharing has a huge element of uh, friendship in it. When they attack, when they feel threatened and they attack neighboring tribes, this is a cooperative endeavor, quite terrifying. So that identity of us versus them, the outside world threatening, we're okay, is built on reciprocation and cooperation. And uh, chimpanzee groups would not be able to thrive and would not have survived for the millions of years that they have if they did not have this innate element. And when we think about humans, that's why I emphasized very strongly at the beginning that this is necessary for us. Our histories is not like, oh, the individual is oppressed by society. It can be oppressed by society. But the individual needs, the human individual, like the chimp individual, because remember, we are just, you know, sort of primates, either gone right or wrong, depending on how you feel about the human. But our primate basic nature requires cooperation, reciprocation, an understanding of kinship relations, an understanding of how we relate to a wider world that we can carry a map of in our minds. And any disturbance in any of those elements tends to undermine our sense of ourselves and a sense of our own well-being. Let me get a drink of water real quick. So now take our, our, our wonderful primate chimps and because of uh, environmental destruction, and various threats from development and the elimination of their habitat, every single element of, of their lives in many areas of the world, most elements of the world, has been disrupted. And that disruption leads to precisely what you would expect it to lead to, all kinds of problems and uh, warfare uh, amongst chimp tribes when their territory is compressed and there's too many chimpanzees uh, for the food resources, which themselves may be becoming increasingly scarce. And roughly speaking, not to overstate it, but those sorts of disturbances create the same kinds of problems that one would expect to find in human societies. However, human societies tend to deal a little bit better with these kinds of disruptions than chimp societies do. Um, slight credit to us, at least on that front, which we'll explore in a later lecture. So foundationally, to get the ball rolling, that's what I want you to think about. Our, our underlying nature is a cooperative. We have to cooperate. Um, if we go even further back in the evolutionary life, or I guess, I don't know, is it further back? We'll just think about the whole, uh, our whole human ancestry in this case. We are born hopeless. We are absolutely, we're born without being fully developed. So human infants have no survival ability whatsoever. We just... You take a human baby a couple of days out, leave it in the wilderness, it's going to die. That's what human babies do. If you take I mean, all kinds of other animals and take the baby, something happens to the parents, you know, if they're a couple of days, a week old, they're going to be fine. They can actually grow up. They can make a go of it. Maybe not as well as they could if they were raised for a longer period of time, but also think about how long that is. You know, maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year, maybe it's a few weeks, but even very large animals often only have uh, 
during their infancy for maybe only a, a week or two or maybe a month or maybe two or three months. For humans, it's actually years. We're, we're worthless. We're hopeless. Our minds are not fully formed. Our heads, it's one of my great details, when babies are born, our brains are so big, our heads are so big, that our, our skull is actually collapsible. It folds in on itself to come out the birth canal. And then when, when we come out of the birth canal, our heads sort of snap back into place. But babies' heads are really, really soft. Our bones are not fully formed. Our minds are nowhere near. Our, our minds do not become fully formed until we're about 25. So you could, you could argue that we have like a 25-year gestation, but I don't, I don't think that would be a good way to count. But that's certainly part of it. But we have at least um, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere around in there. You know, you know pick, pick your date, uh, pick your time. But roughly a decade for a child to become roughly functional. And that sort of gestation period, which is basically maturing outside the womb, requires unbelievable levels of social commitment and cooperation. And that is what underlines our human identity. We are cooperative beings who require that sort of continuous social input to grow and thrive. And the notion that at some point that we go, okay, now you're an adult, so now you should individuate yourself absolutely from your culture is sort of, I'm not sure where this poisonous idea come from. I, I keep trying to track this down. I, I can't come to any firm conclusions, but it is certainly a, a popular modern uh, concept. How far back it goes, mm, it's, it's a struggle uh, to find this. But uh, so I'll, I'll keep looking. I may, I may, by the end of this series, I may have a rough answer to that. But right now, I do not have a rough answer to that. But this notion of radical individuation from a larger culture is essentially poisonous. I have an idea of where this comes from, but it is in no way helpful to think of an individual on their own. We just can't do it as, 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 as humans to thrive. And if you think, okay, if you make it till 12 or 15 or 19, and now you go, okay, now I want to individuate myself. Well, at this point, you've benefited from decades of social input, support, and reinforcement. And it's not even clear to me what it would mean to individuate yourself at that point, right? What, you know, you're separating yourself from the thing that formed you, which is essentially impossible. So it, it really is a, a very strange psychological or philosophical concept that we should be uh, looking at the individual this way rather than within a continual social concept or uh, social space of reciprocity, cooperation, and tension. Again, always tension. Where does this come from? I think part of it, and everything is, you know, partly, that at some point when your social group gets so large, your conception of, think back to the chimpanzees and the chimp space, when your sense of what constitutes a society or your area becomes uh, sufficiently large and abstract, it no longer feeds the need that an individual has to have their sense of identity reflected back on them. And so they begin to feel like they are isolated 
And a natural response, or at least one possible natural response to that, is to go, oh, I need to form my own total sense of identity that in theory has nothing to do with this abstraction that in any case is not feeding me or providing me with what I feel that I need. And so it becomes a sort of uh, reinforcement of scale and abstraction and, and, and the inhumanness of the nature of vast social constructs like, you know, a city of 10 or 15 million is not really meaningful to us. But, it, it, you know, it's a challenge. We live in them, but it doesn't, you know, can we really conceptualize and think of ourselves that way? I'm not sure we are able to. I'm not sure our, our, the, the chimpanzee part of our minds uh, is sufficiently well-developed to make that leap. So, you know, I think that is part of where that struggle comes from. But in any case, as we think about identity, keep those three aspects of our primate ancestors in mind, that we have a sense of history and space, what's ours, where we belong, where our territory is, kinship, friendship, that we and, and social hierarchy. We know where we fit within our families. We know who our families are. We know who our friends are. And we're constantly exploring that. It's not that all this is absolutely fixed, by the way, but we, we know where we are in a moment. We're always exploring and testing and trying to reinforce those. And then we know where we are sort of in the hierarchical element of chimp society. Um, and by, by the way, I should mention, I think I forgot to, that this notion of like alpha male and everything flows down from there and there's this like pyramid or I don't know, corporate CEO structure. This is not how chimp society works, by the way. It's, it's very much more complicated than that. And, uh, you know, females carry a lot of weight, particularly high status females. Um, again, friendship, food sharing doesn't seem to follow hierarchy um, that way. Kinship relations seem to often trump hierarchical issues. So it's not like, oh, there's a, it's a very clear status oriented system in that way. <clears throat> There's many more nuances to it, but there is a, a traceable hierarchical structure that influences relative to kinship and to friendship. And underlining all of that is the cooperative nature of the chimpanzee endeavor toward survival. Now, it's not always cooperative. This breaks down a time there's tension. I'm not, you know, it's not some chimpanzee utopia I'm talking about, but this under layer of cooperation makes everything possible and it makes everything able to thrive. <clears throat> and those fundamental elements we will be going over again and again and again. We'll just see this crop up repeatedly as we explore the question of identity. Finally, for the opening lecture, again, just trying to lay out the ground here because it's a big exploration um, and it keeps growing. So who knows where this will end or where this will end up. Uh, I want to talk about does identity exist? So this is, of course, one of those philosophical, psychological questions that are out there. And you can take the sort of uh, platonic, neoplatonist, uh, Lockean line. Not that those are all identical, but... They, they all assume that there's, a, you know, a very core fundamental human identity that just needs to be discovered or expressed. Um, or you can take the like Humean, Jamesian, I'm trying to think of who else we might throw in there. <clears throat> anyway, the Hume, James, lots of psychologists say, no, no, no. It is your, your sense of identity is just this epiphenomenon that kind of changes continuously and you construct it retrospectively and there really no, is no core you. 
And, you know, it's, it's, you know, even Goethe said, you know, there, you are what you do. So whatever you're doing at any time is you're creating yourself through action, right? You're making yourself new basically every day. Not that you don't have a history, but you can continuously remake yourself. So that is a huge ongoing, you know, multi-millennia debate about the nature of individual identity. But for the sake of this lecture, we can mostly put that aside. I'm going to revisit it at the end. But mostly you can set that aside because whether you really do have a core fundamental identity or it's uh, in the Jamesian, uh, you know, we live in this stream of consciousness moment that can get, gives us a sense of identity that's not really there. You know, uh, okay, sure. But we certainly feel this way. And when we look at our primate ancestors, they behave as if they know who they are. And if that sense of themselves is reinforced in their community, they feel very much better. And so whether it's really there or it's just an epiphenomenon that's kicked up because of a psychological need that we've, um, that's come down to us through evolution, you know, perhaps this is unanswerable, worth exploring. I'm not saying this is a trivial question. It's not trivial in any way. It's a very interesting question or set of questions. But for the core of our argument, we can actually say, okay, sure, whichever one, that's fine. What I want to look at is what happens when that sense is disrupted and taken from us or threatened at levels that are almost unimaginable for the individual to deal with. And that's where the lecture is going to take us. So for next time, um, I want to move on to jump from our chimpanzee ancestors to our later chimpanzee ancestors in the Enlightenment. And in a lot of ways, I think many of the things that we're struggling with today, you can blame on the Enlightenment, which is fun. So I think I'll title the next lecture, Blame the Enlightenment, because that's fun. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this exploration of identity because it's going to get crazy. And I think there's lots of surprising things uh, to share with you. And again, if you're interested in the classes, they're now up online at my uh, web space, westcecil.com or website, I believe is the word, westcecil.com. And um, a big shout out if, to all the people who communicated with me, sent words of support, wanted to sign up on a wait list during a pandemic, very much appreciate it, and lots more content and some other uh, surprising announcements on the way. Thank you very much, and I hope this finds you well.